Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have a returning guest on, Ryan Chop. Really appreciate your time, Ryan. And uh, just so that everybody can follow along, I'm going to send everybody to your website again, newbierealestateinvesting.com slash guide. And take advantage of this, people, because uh, Ryan is offering uh, something uh, special there. So head over to, again, newbierealestateinvesting.com slash guide. And we're going to kind of dive into some of what he's offering through that online uh, form there. But uh, really appreciate your time and welcome back, Ryan. Hey, thanks for welcoming me back on the podcast, Jack. I'm happy to be on. So since the last time we talked, and you can kind of go back to episode 158, and I'm mm-hmm. quickly closing in on episode 300 when we're recording this, Ryan. So that's been it's been a while. Right. So uh, since then, you've picked up a couple more rental properties. Yeah. So uh, for those who don't know my story, I basically was inspired to get into real estate investing from my grandpa who bought a couple properties in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, this was back in the 50s when they were dirt cheap. And of course, we all know um, the real estate market went up like crazy, rents went up, and he was able to have the uh, rental income basically cover all of his expenses and live a life of financial independence. And what I got started as soon as possible after I graduated as a pharmacist, um, one thing that uh, happened during my hospital, like my first hospital job, is I talked to one of the older pharmacists. He was around... I think 59 or so. And I asked him, Hey, what do you like about being a pharmacist? And he told me to tell you the truth, Ryan. um, I'm actually, I would have quit a long time ago if I could have, I'm mainly here to collect the paycheck. And I realized then that, you know, I didn't want to follow that traditional path of go to college, get a job, work nine to five until you're 65 and then retire. I wanted to create my own path to basically have to, or don't have to go to work if I don't want to. If I go to work, I'm choosing to go to work, right? I want to be able to live a life where I can choose to uh, basically a life of flexibility where I can choose to spend more time with family, choose more time to travel the world, um, explore different hobbies of mine, or uh, go into mentorship or education, right? Sure. Well, you know, you're you're a perfect example of what we were going to try to dive into this a little bit today, because I've always, we run into a lot of people, probably you as well, that they're frankly what I would classify as house rich and uh, rental property poor. <laughs> so, how did you how did you level leverage your HELOC to uh, do some of your real estate investing? Yeah. So currently I have uh, six properties. I basically bought one property per year. And what I do is I invest in local college towns and I rent out by the bedrooms. So I buy usually houses with pretty large square footage and add as many extra bedrooms as I can, because every extra bedroom I can add is an additional $600 to $800 in rental income. Um, And what I did was at first, I I put like a 20% down payment on my first property. Um, And then that property uh, really went 
went up like crazy. It went up uh, 60,000, I think, the first year. And then um, five years later, four or five years later, it's up about $168,000. So I was able to take out a HELOC on that property, or it's called a home equity line of credit. Um, it's basically, I took out $100,000 as kind of like a credit card. It's a revolving line of credit where the interest rate is a low rate. It's variable, but it's a low rate, around 4 or 5% for me when I originally took it out. And I used like $50,000 of that $100,000 to put towards the fourth property down payment. And I used $50,000 to put towards the fifth property down payment. And that allowed me to scale so much more quickly. Um, I also reinvested the cash flow that I was making on the original, my, like my first, second, and third property um, because uh, I rent out by the room, right? So that allows me to double my typical rental income. A house that usually rents out for $1,500 per month will actually rent out for around $3,100 per month. Uh, my highest one rents out for $3,700 per month in rental income per yeah, in rental income um, because I basically rent by that bedroom, right? Right. Yeah. You know, this, this was a fascinating at the time that you've been able to pull this off because a lot of real estate investors that are, are in California actually invest out of state because they can't seem to get the numbers to work, but you've really found this kind of magic formula that you've been able to get this to, to work for you. Plus mm -hmm. you you mentioned before we hit record, taking advantage of some of those really low interest rates that are going on right now and locking some of that in. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, interest rates are like below 3%, uh, especially for owner-occupied properties. So I actually am house hacking a house in Sacramento, California. Um, I created, made it a five-bedroom house, rented out the four other bedrooms uh, to tenants. And, you know, I'm taking advantage of an uh, interest rate of 2.75% right now. And actually, right now is the best time to buy because the Fed has said they'll likely be raising the interest rates next year to combat inflation. So if, you know, you were thinking of getting into real estate investing, now is actually definitely one of the best times to lock in a low rate um, to make sure your mortgage payments are pretty low. Yeah, this, this is the definitely the time to take advantage of it, especially if you do have some of the funds that are available, especially locked in your, your personal residence. How did you find that, that process to be then when it came to your HELOC? Did you, when when you were uh, talking and negotiating with the bank, was that fairly easy value to unlock? Yeah, so I always recommend checking out a couple different lenders to see what they can offer you. Uh, my HELOC actually did a promo rate. They did like 2% for the first year or so for your owner-occupied property. So you you want to explore the different options out there. There's some HELOC uh, uh, banks that will basically cap your rate as well. So even though it's a variable rate, they'll cap it at, let's say, 7% or 8% and won't go past that no matter what. Um, the other thing about the HELOC that's really cool is that you don't have to take it out unless you need it. So you can keep it at $0 and you don't have to pay any fees or anything whatsoever on the HELOC until you actually need it to put a down payment on a house. But here's the thing. If you 
are getting like a HELOC and it's a 5% interest rate and you're buying a house that makes a 12% or 15 or 20% cash on cash return for your uh, initial HELOC investment, well, you're borrowing at a 5% interest rate and then you're getting a 12% return. So you're making that 7% uh, return spread that uh, you know is between the HELOC interest rate and the cash on cash return you're making on that property. Plus you're getting appreciation, you're getting tax write-offs, depreciation, um, you're also getting rent in, in rental income increases and equity pay down. So um, if you can take out a HELOC and you have some equity on your property, I highly recommend you do it because it just makes sense, right? You're, mm -hmm. Even though you're using some debt to borrow on that, you're, you're making such a high return that it just makes sense to, to make that money or sorry, to make, to take it sure. out. Well, you, you mentioned that uh, early on in this conversation, you mentioned you've been you've acquired like one property every year, but you mentioned in this scenario, you actually acquired two when you got that HELOC on that one rental property. Have you found that uh, you're at the point now where it's going to start to accelerate like that? Yeah. So at this point, I kind of have two choices. I could, um, it's kind of like the choice that every real estate investor has. I could either pay off some of my properties and then that will boost my cash flow and I could just live off of that. Um, I, I could do that by age of 31. Basically, what I do is I could sell my first property. It would pay off um, three of my other properties, and I'll be making a cash flow of $7,500. That's after expenses and everything, taxes, et cetera. Um, and then I basically live off that $7,500 per month for the rest of my life. Or I could continue scaling, taking uh, HELOCs out. I have about $500,000 in equity on my houses right now, so I could take out um, a $500,000 HELOC. Sorry, I have more than 500. I think I have about 1 point something million in equity on the properties, but that would allow me to actually take out a HELOC of about 500,000, 600,000. And so I could use that to scale further and accelerate. I, I mean, with a $500,000 HELOC, you could probably, I could probably purchase like four or five properties. Um, right now I'm kind of playing with the idea of going that way or the other way. Um, but right now I have six properties that's making $17,510 per month in rental income. Sure. And that's the gross right now. Mm -hmm. And that's the gross. Sure. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's a great, you know, you're, you're defining like the perfect scenario and then you're doing it in a, in a relatively difficult market. Uh, we, we talked about, let's, let's back up for a moment and chat a little bit about this. I know if, if people wanted to go into more detail, look up episode number 158 with Ryan, where we kind of covered this in more detail, but kind of break things down a little bit for us. You know, how did you come around again to this concept of renting out per room instead of uh, the traditional rental? Yeah. So I actually um, saw my friend doing that in college. He was uh, house hacking. He basically lived in a room. Uh, this house was very close to campus. And then he rented out the other bedrooms and the other other bedrooms basically paid down his mortgage. And he also gained appreciation on the house, et cetera. So I figured, hey, you know, if he could do it, why can't I do it? Right. And so I basically um, started out with a single family home, $262,000 near my um, pharmacy school. And I actually had a lot of 
things that came up on that house. I actually lost over $30,000. Um, so there's definitely a uh, room for improvement when I started out. Um, but what happened is I, I basically held on to that house. It went up 168,000. I put in a fourth bedroom and that was able to make a cash flow of about $600 per month. And I basically just improved on that model and perfected it throughout the years, basically getting my marketing system in place, my management systems in place. Like for marketing, I have something called the prime system that I use to get high quality tenants. And so I didn't have to worry about evicting tenants because it's usually the parents paying the rent, right? So you don't have to worry about evictions most times. And if you choose the right tenants, you don't have to worry about having the headaches of having to manage the tenants. Sure. So let, let's talk a little bit about your $30,000 mistake. Like uh, what, what happened there? That uh, Yeah. That. So the very first property I bought was a hundred year old property. And for those out there getting started, I would recommend staying away from houses that cost or that are older than 100 years old, because it just there tends to be a lot of things that kind of go wrong with it. Things are older, right? So they tend to break down. So my first house, I had two issues, uh, two big issues. The one issue was that uh, the house didn't have a very good AC system. So during the summer, I had tenants that were complaining that's like 90 degrees in the house and they can't sleep, right? Um, the second issue that happened is actually. I got a phone call around 10 or 11 p.m. at night. I still remember it was on the weekend. And he, he told me, hey, there's sewage coming out of the kitchen sink. It spilled out over the kitchen floor. You know, it's gross. It smells horrible. Um, and so I had to get somebody out there to clean it up. Right. And then I also had to um, stick a camera down the sewage line to see what was going on. It turned out the whole sewage line was crushed and broken by the tree roots that were sticking into it. So I had to replace the whole sewage line and that cost $7,000. And the uh, um, AC system, I had to replace the whole AC system. That one cost about $15,000 somewhere between 15 and $18,000. So what I did actually was I made a deal with my father. Um, at the time, I only had $7,000 left in the bank, but I, I owed like, you know, over $23,000. So what I uh, asked or the deal that I, I created was uh, he lent me the $23,000 to create a bedroom an extra bedroom at the house to, you know, get the new AC system to prepare the sewage line and exchange. He gets $550 per month on that bedroom that he created for the rest of his life. So after three years, it would pay back his full $23,000. And after that, he makes about a 28, 29% return on cash invested. So for him, you know, it's a win-win situation, right? He invested mm -hmm. the money. Um, he gets a return for the rest of his life. And for me, I was able to make the repairs and have that extra bedroom. Do you so, still have that house today? I do. Yes. I do still have it today, um, but I am again, like I said, I was playing. I'm playing with the idea of maybe selling that house because it went so it went up in price like crazy, uh, as real estate kind of does in California. The appreciation in California is really high, even though your cash flow is a little bit lower. Your appreciation is crazy, um, so I, I'm playing with the idea of selling that, paying off the uh, three of my rental properties, three out of the six, and then basically retiring um, and then living a life of financial freedom, uh, maybe traveling the world for a bit uh, or just um, getting into, I teach students how to do exactly what I do um, in student housing. So maybe exploring, uh, expanding that business or, you know, picking up a hobby. Sure. 
Well, you know, you, you mentioned uh, some tips, you know, th- this, this concept that you have regarding student housing, uh, you mentioned some tips around marketing. How have you learned? What are your tactics there? Or if you, mm-hmm. your tactics? Yeah, so I use something called the prime system, which is the system I created. Uh, the P stands for placement of advertising. So wherever your target tenant is, you want to place your ads where that target tenant hangs out. So it's kind of like if you are placing your ads where they don't hang out, it's like fishing in an empty pond, which you don't want to do. So for me, I kind of look at Facebook groups, Craigslist, but I basically figure out where do the college tenants hang out? Maybe it's campus bulletin boards, um, and I place my ads there. The second thing is uh, R, which is reviewing social media. So I'll once they contact me, either through Facebook or email, I'll kind of look through their social media. I'll go through the, the their Facebook and look for things like smoking, alcohol, drugs, uh, maybe raves. See what type of tenant they are. Like, are they a party type who you know smokes or does drugs and all of that, or are they somebody who's more professional? Maybe they're going into a professional school like pharmacy, dentist ministry, medical school, or nursing, right? So those are going to be the more high quality type tenants. The I stands for identifying the type of tenant they are. So are they somebody who gets angry easily? Are they somebody who's constantly looking for a cheaper deal? Are they um, asking for things they shouldn't be asking for? Are they a very picky tenant? That kind of thing. Um, And then M stands for measuring responsiveness. So I find that the more responsive a tenant is, the more responsible they are. So a tenant who gets back to me right away, um, like when I ask, hey, you know, your rent is late. Can you get me the the rent as soon as possible? I want that type of tenant over somebody who's going to wait three weeks to respond, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I look for those who are responsible, responsive, professional, that type of thing. And then E stands for ensuring proof of income. So though it's the um, students staying at the house, it's actually the parents who usually are paying the income. So are paying the rent. So I, I kind of look at the last few uh, two month bank statements and credit score of the parent, either that or uh, pay stubs or for students, sometimes they take out student loans or they have financial aid. And I basically ensure that they can afford the rent so that we're not dealing with unpaid rent. Right. And having sure. to go down the eviction pathway, which I've never had to deal with, um, especially in the student housing market. You're probably going to answer this second uh, next question uh, based on regarding managing these rentals. But before we get, go there, I want to remind everybody again, newbierealestateinvesting.com slash guide uh, for Ryan's information and, and uh, to get some of this information that Ryan is chatting and talking about here today. So managing these properties, how do you ensure that you have, you know, half a dozen of these college kids are sharing a living space that they're going to get along? Yeah, that's a great question. And here's the thing, you might have tenant-tenant conflict come up, but as long as you have a system and protocol in place for if this happens, I will do X or, you know, this is what's going to happen, then everything kind of works itself out. So it's really about having the systems and processes in place. For example, if I have a tenant-tenant tenant versus tenant conflict, what I do is I have the tenant who's complaining talk directly to the tenant they're complaining about face-to-face, and then having that discussion, explaining you know, why they're upset, and then coming up with an actionable plan that they can take and implement to make sure this doesn't happen again. And then I have them imp- implement the plan, and most times that's enough. 
what I don't do, what I actually did at the beginning, which was a mistake, was I, I basically took that complaint and then I called up the other tenant and said, hey, the other tenants are complaining about you. What are you going to do? Because that just escalates the situation a lot of times because now the tenant is going like, this guy's talking behind my back, telling the landlord on me, you know, and so he just gets angrier, he or she, right? Mm -hmm. So having that, the tenants kind of work it out face-to-face first and having a plan together and, and coaching them through that process um, really dissolves a lot of the conflict. Um, you also want to have a good team in place. So if something breaks down, like let's say you have a broken appliance, like a, a washer or dryer or stovetop or whatever breaks down, you need to have a handyman in place that can go in and get the thing fixed within the, the first week or the first couple of days of it breaking. The other thing is um, having people like specialist contractors for more bigger projects, or maybe for me, it's putting those extra bedrooms in. I have somebody who is good at putting up the drywall, putting in the door and everything um, and putting in those bedrooms. And I just use them every time I need to put in a bedroom. So having the teams in place and having those um, contractors that you can trust to get the job done is very essential as well uh, to have a, a strong system to uh, make this passive in, uh, six-figure rental income or whatever your goal is. Sure. So w- what are some of those other tactics? I know that you, frankly, don't, you you do self-manage these properties to a certain extent anyway, but what are some of those other strategies that you've, you, you've mentioned that you spend maybe an hour a week managing these properties? What other mm-hmm. strategies? Yeah. Have so yeah, I definitely. So like definitely the marketing, um, I'll post on these, the Facebook groups and I have basically uh, kind of like a funnel where I have them look through, I give them re- a rental app to fill out and then they get that back to me. I offer them a video tour of the house, or maybe a, uh, one of the tenants could give a tour of the house. Uh, one of the current tenants that is, or I, and then I'll, sorry, I'll ask for proof of income and then I'll have them sign the lease. So I basically have kind of a funnel, uh, a step-by-step process for marketing and getting the tenants from um, applying for your house all the way to a signed lease. Um, The other thing is, like I mentioned, the tenant uh, uh, ho- showing the home to future tenants or future prospective tenants. What I do is I have the current tenants uh, basically do an open house. So I have all the, the tenants come in on one day and that kind of creates that demand because they're like, oh, they get that FOMO, right? This this other guy is also looking into getting the bedroom that I'm looking at, right? So mm-hmm. I better you know, get my paperwork in and get a lease signed as soon as possible if I want to snag the room. And so that creates that demand and allows you to charge um, basically whatever market rent price you want to charge or premium price you want to charge. And uh, yeah, so that's just one tactic, you know, having uh, an open house basically and having one of the current tenants uh, do the showing. So basically kind of create these different protocols and plans in place uh, allows you to create that system. Yeah, you know that that's one of the things that I had learned to do too is the inviting everybody at the same time. But mine was for single family homes. So if I had a single family home for rent, I would set up one time one location, invite everybody there at one time. That really helped. That yes, really helped. Exactly. You know. Uh huh. It creates that urgency and demand that allow you know makes the prospect, the tenant, think, okay, I I should be you know pretty quick about this. There's a time limit. There's a deadline to this. I can't just sit on this application forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the other things that I've I you know now I'm going to 
mention something I've been doing lately with a lot of, well, for quite a while now with quite a bit of success. Have you seen those? Uh, they're like $25, $30. They're wise cameras. Uh, you can, you can, Oh yeah. Yeah. They're, they're very those, yeah. inexpensive cameras. Mm-hmm. And then I, I have internet at most of my, most of my places so that, um, or, or a hotspot. And I put a wise camera in my, in the vacant unit and then a lockbox on the door. And if somebody wants to see it at any time, it seems like there's a, there's a sense of urgency there. Like if, if somebody is looking for a property and I have to do some sort of scheduling, I have a less likely chance of getting something, somebody in place versus, yeah, you can come anytime. This is the process. It's, it's yeah. always great to have that, that process. Right. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I use lock boxes of course, as well. So if ever a contractor needs to get into the house, they just use that lock box to let themselves in, get the work done. And then they send me a bill. I send them a check and that's, you know, a pretty simple process. Yeah, no, it, it, it works so slick. Um, especially when, you know, uh, they're on their best behavior because I always let them know too, that, there's a camera in the unit. It's it's not it's not something that's hidden by any stretch. Right. So, but but yeah. So so it, it's probably pretty beneficial too then that you have those residents that are already living there doing the tours or hosting these events on your behalf. Um, do they provide you some sort of direct feedback too regarding some of the people that have come through? Yeah, definitely. I can ask them, hey, how did you like the tenants? You know, did they seem like a responsible tenants, professional type? Um, I also, another thing I do is I ask for referrals too. And sometimes I even offer like a, a ref, ref referee. I don't know how to say that, but referee um, fee. So like if a tenant who's referred to me by another tenant signs up, maybe I might give them a hundred dollars once the lease is signed. Right. But here's the thing. Once you reach a certain scale, like for me, I have 23 uh, students in one uh, school. Each of those 23 students knows another, maybe three friends that might want to stay with them. Right. So all of a sudden, 23 times three, that's like 69, right? You have 69 prospective tenants who might want to stay at your house. So I would say at least 50, 60, maybe 70% of my uh, tenants, incoming tenants, just come through to me through a referral network by word of mouth, because I've achieved that uh, scale, that magnitude that allows me to just rely on referrals at this point. Sure. So how long has is your typical resident staying there? Is it Four years, two years. What 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 does yeah, that typically look like? That's a good question. Like? I would say maybe fifty percent might be just one year. Another good twenty five percent, thirty percent is like two years, and then another maybe ten percent to twenty percent, maybe like um, three years, four years, etc. Yeah. Sure. So, what is that? What, do you typically do like one month of deposit, similar to a, any other apartment? I do one and a half months deposit and I only offer a one year lease for everyone. So basically August to August of the next year. Um, And that allows me basically to make sure I don't have any vacancies. It's back to back. You know, one student leaves, the other, the next student comes in very similar to how like student housing works on campus as well. Sure. Have you found that there's ever any times where I suppose you're vetting them out to the point where you don't have a lot of this, but where you have to do some major repairs or re- carpet replacements and stuff that they, you have to give yourself some time there between residents? 
That's a good question. So the only repair we've had to do and, and like keep um, deposit money was one time when the student accidentally broke a window. He just leaned back in the chair and uh, accidentally broke the window. But other than that, I haven't really had to do any major repairs. I do have a maid kind of do uh, a deep cleaning of the property in between. So sometimes I'll, I'll put like a week gap. Sometimes, you know, so, most times it's back to back, but sometimes I'll have like a, a week gap in between where I could, you know, do the deep cleaning, uh, replace flooring or whatever, if I wanted to do that. Um, I think there was one house where the carpet got really dirty. So I just replaced it with vinyl plank. So I had a week or a week and a half or so to, to do that. Sure. So do, do you, uh, is this part of the lease agreement too, is that they, they as a group somehow have to put together some sort of plan to, to keep the common areas clean? Not necessarily. Generally, they, they it's on the tenant, I should say. Um, there are some tenants that were a little bit more trashy than others, but as long as it's clean by the end of the um, lease, um, I'm okay with it. You know, I don't really care about what happens in between, but I do coach them through, Hey, you have to make sure you remove all the food from the refrigerator before the next tenants come in. You have to make sure, you know, you take out the trash, et cetera. Um, sometimes I solicit help from the parents as well. Um, you know, the parents will come in with their vacuum or whatever and vacuum the whole place. Um, so I've been generally able to do that and hire the maid as well um, to help me with the cleaning process. Yeah. You know, I, the reason I ask is because uh, I've, I've had, uh, I can't remember the fellow's name right now, but I've had another person who does something similar to you actually. And, and he must be in a different part of the country and different, different type of uh, colleges because he has mm -hmm. had some significant, significant issues with the, the common areas and keeping things in order, you uh -huh. know, those shared areas right. to the point where he has learned to add additional uh, costs to the overall, I think he charges an extra $20 a room or something to have a, a, a maid come in like once a week to, to tidy up after these college kids. Yeah. Yeah. Some people do that. They do like twice a month or once a month. Um, I haven't really had to do that too much from, you know, from my experience, but I guess it depends. I also try to tenant proof my property as much as possible. So sure. wherever I can, I try to put in like vinyl plank if there's, you know, carpet um, originally so that I don't have to, you know, deal with cleanup issues. Yeah. Vinyl plank has, has been a lifesaver. I've, I've been slowly moving some of those rental properties to that as well, especially in the living room and stuff area. Being where I'm at, it, it's kind of more common to make sure that the, the bedrooms still have carpeting, but it's the mm -hmm. It's those common areas that have been all going to yeah. that vinyl plank. Oh, yeah, for sure. And the other cool thing about the strategy is because you're making a good $1,000, $1,500 in uh, cash flow, pretty much per single family house, uh, you have the funds if there is a major repair that comes up. A lot of people who are only making like $200, $300 in cash flow, I, you know, it's just not enough. It doesn't make sense to me because that every single house that you have, you they have you eventually have to replace a roof, you have to eventually replace an HVAC or water heater, etc. Right. So if you have one HVAC repair that you know costs like eight thousand, ten thousand dollars, that's going to wipe out your cash flow for the whole year if you only make a hundred, three hundred dollars in uh, cash flow. For us, mm -hmm. though, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred 
cash flow per year, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to make those repairs that eventually. Yeah, no, that, that's what makes this, this concept really attractive is, is that mm-hmm. you have a, a much higher return on that investment. So, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned that uh, you try to do a year lease. What happens if somebody bugs out early? Like, you know, they decide yeah, college so, is, isn't a good fit. Yeah. So there are definitely like the school year is usually like fall semester, spring semester, and then they're off for the summer. Right. So a lot of times, at least the schools I invest in, they have summer school. So what I say is, hey, you know, it's a year lease, but you can always sublease it during the summer. Or if you're taking summer school yourself, you can definitely stay at, you know, at the property. And what I do is I offer to help them find a subletter as well, because there's plenty of students who um, take summer classes. Usually uh, every time I'm able to find a subletter, as long as they let me know early enough. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with all of these, you got a lot of college kids coming and going. This is, there's a lot of moving parts going on here uh, Mm -hmm. in these, in these properties. What are you using to manage all this? Yeah. So I actually self-manage the properties again with the systems I have in place for marketing management. I have a team of contractors. So I want to say it's all self-managed property. Obviously I'm not going in there fixing the toilets. It's going to be my team of contractors who help me on that. Uh, for rent, um, I usually collect rent through Zelle, which is an electronic payment app. And mm-hmm. that way I don't have to worry about the checkout lost in the mail, that type of issue. And I keep track of expenses and income through um, Excel. So okay. it's, for me, it's pretty easy. Eventually, I might want to outsource this out when I get to like maybe 10 properties. But right now, sitting at six properties, this is totally doable. I actually work uh, 32 hours a week as a pharmacist still. So four days a week, essentially. And I'm able to manage this rental system on the side. Um, again, like it only takes like less than an hour a week because I have those systems in place already. So just in a nutshell, then. Over the past six years, you've accumulated six rental properties mm-hmm. that's grossing about 17000 a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a bit more than about $17,510 per month. Yeah. yeah, congratulations, that's, man. That's that's yeah. awesome. So a lot just of a, it is kind of the relationship. Sorry, the love is about the relationship you establish with your tenants. Um, you want to have a strong bond of trust between you and the tenants, and that ensures that things go smoothly along the way. Because if you need their help, they're willing to help you as long as you are showing that you're trying to help them and service them as best as possible as a landlord. So a lot of things I do is kind of work with my tenants to get things done. I I call it tenant empowerment. So I I show them, okay, if the internet goes down, this is what you do type of thing. And I have instructions for this type of stuff as well. So we kind of work together as a team and I include tenants as part of my team. Yeah. You know, this, that's one of those things that you mentioned early, early on is the fact that you uh, look for those people that are responsive to you rather quickly. That kind of is, is a double-edged sword, right? You, you also have to be very responsive to your, your uh, tenants. Yeah, exactly. So. But at the same time, you also uphold the rules as a landlord, right? If they are you know, causing trouble or angering the other tenants, you have to step in and take your leadership there. Right. Well, one last reminder, head over to newbierealestateinvesting.guide and take, uh, take Ryan up on his offer there. We have Ryan Cha on the line here again. And uh, again, Ryan, before I let you go, is there a question you wished I would have asked you here today? 
No, I think you pretty much covered everything. As far as scaling, you know, be open to taking on partners, uh, be open to using equity on your property or to pay for, you know, the down payment on your future properties. And for those who uh, don't have their first rental, you know, what's the very first step you need to take to get started? So boiling it down to the very first step, like maybe it's just calling a real estate agent up and asking, hey, can I just look at, you know, see some of the properties or maybe just give me a video walkthrough of some of the properties around this area because I'm thinking of doing this, right? That's the best way to get started. I mean, you could read all the books, listen to, you know, bigger pockets or, you know, read all the blogs. As, as much as you want or listen to this podcast too. But if you don't get started, then nothing happens, right? So getting started, taking that first step, even though it's scary, um, will put you further ahead than even if you read like 10, 20 books, right? Um, so I just encourage all those who don't have their first rental just to get, you know, dive in, um, find a mentor if, if you, uh, you know, want to go into a specific area, find somebody, like if you're flipping find somebody who's good at flipping, right? Um, if you need help in student housing, you can contact me. Again, the www.investing.com slash guide is a free guide that I provide for you guys for basically my system for getting started and making scaling to a six-figure portfolio. Well, thank you again, Ryan. This was a great conversation. I hope you come back again sometime very soon. Let's let's do this sooner than uh, 150 episodes later. Sounds good, Jack. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.